This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 8 of Office Hours, and we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. In confessional Protestant circles, we use some shorthand Latin phrases that we might not all understand, even though we use them frequently. Sola fide, by faith alone, is one of those shorthand expressions. Like the others, it is not always well understood, either by Protestants or Roman Catholics. Some give the impression that the faith through which we are justified and saved and sanctified is alone, that the fruit of sanctification does not necessarily follow it. Others characterize faith as if it were only intellectual assent, agreement to propositions, and still others talk about faith as though it were synonymous with faithfulness. Julius Kim joins us to help us sort this out. He is professor of practical theology and dean of students at Westminster Seminary, California, where he's taught since 2000. He's author of Preaching the Whole Council of God, Design and Deliver Gospel-Centered Sermons. This, with other faculty titles, is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Julius, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here. What do we mean when we use this expression, this Latin expression, sola fide? You know, for those of you that are interested in church history, it's actually one of the major slogans or rallying cries of this really turning point in history of the 16th century when Martin Luther and others protested against what they believed was the false gospel that was being preached by the Roman Catholic Church. And that time it was his own church. Luther, as a careful Bible reader and Bible scholar, as he was reading through books like Romans, discovered that the church of his day had mixed up a very important, in fact, perhaps the most important doctrine in Scripture today, namely that we are justified by faith alone and not faith plus anything else. And that's really essentially the gospel. And that was really this doctrine of justification that is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by the account of or on the ground of Christ's work alone was of monumental importance, not only to Luther, but ultimately for Protestants like you and me. And so that was kind of captured in this one phrase, sola fide, the Latin phrase, which means faith alone. Leading up to the Reformation, if you'd ask any medieval theologian or any intelligent layman, if you said, what is faith? Right In the Western church, you would have said, quid est fides, what is faith? And they would have come back with something like, well, it involves trusting, but it also involves obeying. They would have said that faith really is faithfulness. And that was the burden under which Martin Luther was laboring. He was trying the best he could, being a good, faithful, pious monk, to keep all of God's law and all of the regulations that Rome had heaped on him. How well did he do? Yeah, he, like you and me, I think he failed pretty quickly, even in his desire to keep the law and his really pious desire to keep the law and all that God wants us to do and to be. I'm sure he recognized and realized very quickly that it's impossible, just absolutely impossible. You sound like a man speaking from experience. <laughs> you know, the Apostle Paul, I think, let's just start from Scripture alone. You know, if there's a godly man, here's a man who knew his Scripture. Half the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. In his letter to a young pastor named Timothy, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. 
Paul understood this even before Luther, and he was a very pious person who wanted to keep the law, a Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, circumcised on the eighth day. He knew the law probably better than anybody else in his day, but he realized very quickly that he cannot keep the law by himself. And so I think what Luther was trying to do is trying to understand this idea that faith is not only necessary, but also sufficient insofar as it's the primary instrument by which we trust in Christ's work alone. And I think for the Catholics of his day, prior to that in the Middle Ages, I think they would say that faith is necessary, but not sufficient, that something else was needed in order to be just before God. Well, that was built into their definition of faith. That's right. If you ask Thomas Aquinas, for example, in the 13th century, what is faith? In the act of sanctification, which was for them justification, right? In the medieval church, you're justified through sanctification and to the extent that you are intrinsically actually sanctified. Say, what is faith? He says, well, faith is formed, brought into reality by love, by which he meant the work of the Spirit within you and your cooperation with that work unto sanctification. Absolutely. And what's interesting is that, you know, we can talk about all the historical context to it, why Luther struggled. But I think this is the problem that every human being faces. In a sense, we're naturally wired to turn in upon ourselves and justify ourselves. That happened with Adam and Eve. It really starts there. Uh, They were deluded and deceived and rebelled into thinking that they can save themselves apart from God's ways. And this curving in upon ourselves to justify ourselves is what Luther actually said is our primary problem. He used another Latin phrase, incurvatus and say, we're turned in upon ourselves. And he said, actually, what we need is we need to go outside of ourselves to this alien, not this crazy person from outer space. Not E.T. That's right. But something apart from ourselves. Apart from ourselves, outside of ourselves. And I think Luther, reading Paul, recognized that looking outside ourselves, we see Christ his sinless life, and then when his righteousness that he earned through his sinless life, the only person in the history of mankind to never sin, obey every law, when we actually by faith through that instrument, you know, assent, knowledge, trust, all of those, I'm sure we'll talk about those in a little bit, we actually then receive his merit by faith alone as the instrument. And so it's both necessary and sufficient. And so I think this is something that's of vital importance It wasn't only important in the 16th century, but it's something that's very important today because I think in many well-intentioned evangelical churches, not just here in North America, but around the world, they're fundamentally misunderstanding sola fide in our preaching, in our teaching, and even in our own Christian living. Elaborate on that a little bit. Where do you see that and how do you know that people are not getting sola fide? Sure. Let me give you an example. Let me start from there. I remember I was in Korea a couple of years ago giving some lectures on preaching Christ from all the scriptures. This particular lecture was really more on the hermeneutics, the interpretation of scriptures and how to find Christ, especially in places like the Old Testament where Christ is not explicitly mentioned. So I was trying to talk about how important it is in our preaching to not only interpret the scriptures in light of Christ, but then going to the next level. How do you communicate the importance of Christ in the scriptures? And in that way, we're trying to explain that not only for salvation, but also for sanctification, that is justification and sanctification, it's all about Jesus. But unfortunately, I think in our churches, we're having sermons that are basically saying, you know what, faith is important, but God really needs you to do something too. It's a slightly different version of the Catholic justification by faith plus works. Even in our evangelical churches all around the world, I think they're misunderstanding this vital distinction 
of faith alone. And so when I was giving this lecture, several seminary students who happened to be in the audience came up to me and said, you know, we've never heard this before. We understand, I think, generally, doctrinally, the importance of faith alone in our doctrine. But we didn't realize how important it is to preach that because essentially what we're doing in our sermons is we're preaching moralism, is how you can prove yourself to be godly, how you can prove yourself to be holy. And subtly, what they were doing is meshing up justification and sanctification, almost merging them together. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. This is really important. It's possible to get someone to give you an orthodox articulation of the doctrine of justification through faith alone, and then to see that same person get into a pulpit and effectively abandon it. That's really important. And I think it's important because I have been guilty of doing it myself, of putting people back under the law particularly at the end of the sermon, by not doing the right kind of application. That's exactly right. And one of the things that I'm so thankful that we're doing here at Westminster is helping students, especially preachers, understand that vital distinction and helping them understand what is gospel-centered preaching. That includes application, of course, but only because of the ground of our justification in Christ alone. And so we must get to the gospel. And it's the gospel that motivates us into a life of gratitude and holiness and love and even justice. But all of that flows out of the ground of our justification, which is Christ's work alone, received by faith alone. And it's not like we have to say every sermon, now let me talk about justification and faith alone. Obviously, what we're trying to do here is to help our students become very careful exegetes and then expositors of that unique text as it was written to its unique and original audience, but then also figure out how does that fit in the broader story, the big story of God's redemptive history and showing how that ultimately culminates in the person and work of Jesus and how it's only through Jesus, in and through Jesus, we can actually change and be holy. But that's after understanding that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Okay, we've been using this phrase, faith alone, and we've been talking about faith, and we've characterized it, but we haven't exactly defined it. And you, in passing, just a moment or two ago, talked about knowledge, assent, and trust. What are those three things, and how do they relate to faith? Luther and other reformers, if I'm not mistaken, talked about faith not just being a kind of mental, intellectual awareness, but it had to be more than that. It's part of that. You have to know certain things, Absolutely. Right? So there's certain knowledge. You can't believe in Jesus if you don't know who he is or that's know right. anything about him. That's right. And that's why preaching is so important. So what we do is when we preach, we preach a certain content. We preach truth, objective truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And based on that knowledge of the historical Jesus and the historical cross and resurrection, etc., faith involves knowing that objective knowledge. But it's more than that. It's not just knowledge. It's also assenting to that. It's actually believing that those things were actually true that Jesus actually existed in Palestine 2,000 years ago, that he actually lived a sinless life, as the Bible says, that he actually went to a Roman cross as a common criminal. And there, some exchange happened. He received all the wrath of God, which was our sin. And then when we believe in that, and we'll talk about what that is in this kind of personal trust, when we actually have this personal trust, not just this intellectual awareness and belief, but also this personal trust in that Jesus, the goodness of what he did for me, then something actually happens. My sins get transferred to Jesus, and his merit, his righteousness gets transferred to me. That phrase you used, for me, yeah. that was something that Luther hit on all the time. He used to say, 
learn to say to yourself, for me, mm. right? That's right at the core of what it means to trust Jesus. That's right. And I think people sometimes believe faith is just this kind of cognitive awareness. But we know from Scripture, even the demons believe that Jesus is God. But last time I checked, demons are not in heaven. So just a kind of stark intellectual awareness does not save you. It's part of it. So I think this is what Luther is getting at. Luther and others were talking about the importance of knowledge, assent, and trust as being primary elements. You need to actually have all three, or what I like to sometimes call the head, the heart, and the hands. You need to be all involved in trusting in Jesus and his work alone. We didn't talk about repentance yet, but again, repentance has those same kind of elements, the head, heart, and the hands, turning away from sin and turning to Christ in knowledge, assent, and trust. The uh, Heidelberg Catechism, I think, is helpful here. Heidelberg 21 asks the question, what is true faith? And the answer is, true faith is not only a certain knowledge, so there's the first part, the knowing, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence, or a hearty trust, we used to say, which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel in my heart, that not only to others, but to me also, there's that for me aspect, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. So it's not just Luther or Calvin or individual theologians saying this. This is the confession of the Reformed and Presbyterian churches that still believe this stuff. You know, the church over the centuries, in their well-intentioned desire to follow scriptures, have gone off the rails a little bit. And, you know, Luther and the Catholic Church is one example of that. And here, I think the confessions are such a helpful summary of clear understanding of this doctrine. Again, here at Westminster, we're so thankful because, one, we're Bible-centered. We want to make experts in the Bible. But we also allow the confessions to be a very helpful guide in clarifying and summarizing and teaching some of these essential truths in really clear ways and helpful ways. So I really like that statement there. I think it really captures and summarizes well the doctrine of sola day involving not only knowledge, but also deep trust. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to Dr. Julius Kim about what it means to say sola fide, by faith alone. And we're thinking particularly also about what it means to preach the doctrine of sola fide and how that colors our preaching and influences the way we read Scripture and proclaim it in the pulpit. And so let's look at some passages of Scripture, and perhaps the place we have to start is Genesis 15, 6. You know that by heart. Abraham believed Yahweh, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Right? And then that's the verse to which Paul goes in Romans chapter 4 when he wants to explain justification. What does it mean when Scripture says Abraham believed the Lord and believed Yahweh, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness? Yeah, there's a lot there. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, not only in Romans, as you mentioned, but also in places like Galatians, really belabors that because I think it's because Paul recognized so clearly the importance of this doctrine, that this is not just a New Testament understanding. And that's another thing we could talk about, too. That's hugely important, right? Say that again. That, you know, justification by faith alone is not a New Testament doctrine. It's actually a Bible doctrine that we actually believe that Abraham is in heaven, just like hopefully we will be, because of Christ's work alone. Abraham is the father of all who believe, right? He's the father of Gentiles who believed and were not circumcised. He's the father of Jews who believed in the coming Messiah who were circumcised, right? So Abraham is the first Christian 2,000 years before the Incarnation. And that's so important because I think there's a lot of well-intentioned Christians who, in their desire to read the Bible faithfully, 
think that somehow the Old Testament saints are in heaven through a different method or a different way. Clearly, they weren't justified by faith alone, Julius, and Christ alone, because Christ hasn't even come on the scene yet. Well, actually, if you read passages like (laughs) Hebrews, Galatians, and Romans. Well, yeah, Romans chapter 4, 1 and 2. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Right now we were back to Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's brilliant there because what Paul is explaining is that Abraham looked forward to the promises of God bound up in the person and work of the Messiah. So even though he never saw Jesus, knew Jesus. With his eyes. His eyes, that is. He believed and he trusted. He knew in his mind what God had provided for him and for his salvation. That is the Messiah, the coming Messiah, who would live and die for him. And he trusted in that, in his hearty trust and belief. He saw with the eyes of faith, That's didn't he, right. right? Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced That's in right. John 8, 56. And that's why he's included in the hall of faith, what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Because he is in heaven because of his faith alone in Christ alone. And so God reckoned to him, or God justifies him. He legally declares Abraham to be simultaneously still a sinner and yet justified because of Christ's work and his faith in Christ alone, not because of his ability to follow the law. You don't need to read the Abrahamic narrative very far to recognize that, yeah, actually, Abraham's a lot like you and me. He's a sinner. He's a liar. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. And that's another great Latin expression that we use. So this is our Reformation celebration 500th anniversary. So we'll learn another Latin phrase, simo justus et peccator, right? At the same time, righteous, and sinner. A faithful Roman Catholic cannot say that. Of course Because not. Rome confesses that we're justified because we're sanctified or to the degree we are sanctified. We confess that Abraham was justified while he was still in his sins. Absolutely. And there's a lot there we could talk about. But I think fundamentally, I think when we actually talk about the nature of justification, we're presupposing some other categories like original sin, the nature of sin, the noetic effects of sin, namely, what is sin and what has it done to us? And I think over and against Catholic doctrine, we actually believe that we're so sinful 
that were essentially dead. Not half dead, with a little bit of a pulse still going on. We're not wounded. We're no, not we're, ill. We're not ill. We're dead. And that's what the scripture says. Our hearts are like stone. Last time I checked, you cannot resuscitate a stone back to life <laughs> last time I checked. And yet somehow, because I think of this fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of original sin and the effects of sin upon our heart, our hearts need to be regenerated. We don't just need to work a little bit at it and try to receive a little bit of righteousness because we inherently have it within us. We have none. We need the righteousness of someone else who is actually perfect because of our sinful state. And so I think it's important for us to even start there and talk about how Roman Catholic doctrine errs and gets to where they are because of their misunderstanding of sin. And that's really the beauty of the gospel is that when we read the Bible correctly, we see a Savior who does everything for us. And that's what's so beautiful about the gospel. It has nothing to do with me. Hallelujah. Because if it were up to me, I'm in big trouble, Scott. You'd be toast. (laughs) And so would I, and so would the rest of us. Absolutely. And this is the message that's so important for a dying world. Not that you need to try a little harder. You need faith, but you need a little bit more. See, and that's transformative for preaching. And so, as you say, this isn't a matter of sort of wedging sola fide into every passage. This is a consciousness of a fundamental truth that shapes and colors the way the minister relates to the congregation, the way the minister relates to the scriptures, how he sees the story unfolding. So this is a really fundamental idea that deeply influences preaching. It's not just a doctrine that we tick off and then sort of ignore as we get into the pulpit. Absolutely. In fact, sometimes I even think of preaching as kind of pre-counseling. Think about it that, for example. There's so many people in our congregation and as shepherds and as pastors, we're trying to help them to live godly lives, lives filled with meaning and purpose. And ultimately, if we misunderstand the gospel, we're really not helping anybody. If we give them seven rules to be a better husband, you know, five steps to be a better son, again, there's some wisdom there. There's some good things there. But if we detach them from the power and the presence of Christ, that namely the power and the presence that only the gospel can provide, namely a faith plus works or something like that, a faith plus something, then we're misunderstanding and ultimately misteaching how people can change. And so this idea of sola fide is not only important for preaching and interpreting the scriptures and teaching this to our congregation, but ultimately it shapes even the pastoral ministry of helping people change. If they misunderstand the gospel, they're not going to change. They may change for a little bit. We might see some things, you know, maybe in a day, they try really hard to be that husband on Valentine's Day. They're going to bring the flowers. They're going to buy the chocolate. And for one afternoon and evening, they're going to be a wonderfully gracious and loving husband. But the next morning, something's going to happen and he's not going to be a very loving husband. So does he just try harder? Is that what we say as pastors? You know, brother, you need to just try harder. Shame on you. Try harder. Well, yes and no. We say, yes, shame on you if you're sinful. Call him out of sin. But we also say, try harder. But by the way, the only way you can try harder is first of all, recognizing who you are, who Jesus is, and how change occurs only through him. And so, Preaching and pastoral ministry is all impacted by this fundamental paradigm, perspective, sensibility, understanding of sola fide. So this is not just a doctrine that we talk about here in the halls of academia, but it's about the nitty gritty of life. And so it's really our privilege and honor to be able to then take these doctrines, these wonderful, liberating, good, beautiful doctrines like sola fide, justification by faith alone, and teach it and counsel it to our people. It's not even the case that we're justified by grace alone through faith alone, but then we're sanctified 
by grace and works or grace and faith and works. Sanctification, too, is by God's grace alone. We confess that in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that sanctification is the work of God's grace, and that is received through faith alone. That's exactly right. You said a great phrase there. Sanctification is a work of God's grace. What's interesting is that if you compare and contrast that to the way the Westminster Shorter Chasm talks about justification, it says justification is an act of God's grace. Sanctification is a work of God's grace. Here, let's compare. It's all God's grace. But let's contrast act versus work. And so again, I think it's important to recognize first that both justification and sanctification is part of God's grace to us. And again, this isn't something, too, that we're just making up here. I'm looking at Acts 26, 18, where we see the expression, right? So I'll just read part of it. Who are sanctified by faith in me. That's exactly right. So, I mean, it is a scriptural way of speaking. And Paul, you see him moving between justification and sanctification in Galatians, for example, which we've mentioned, right? Having begun by grace alone through faith alone, are you going to finish through works? Well, no, that's not how it works. It begins with grace through faith alone, and it ends, it is completed by grace alone through faith alone. The whole Christian life is really summed up in that. And again, that doesn't mean that we don't exert ourselves, right? Sometimes when people hear us say that, they interpret it to mean that we're counseling a passivity. No, we're saying that we struggle manfully, if I can use that expression, against sin. Or we're actively seeking to die to sin and to live to Christ, but we do so in a context of grace alone through faith alone. That's exactly right. And in the 16th century, I think one of the primary arguments over and against the Protestant view of justified by faith alone is the charge of antinomianism by the Catholics. But the Reformers, are, I think, were very careful to point out that it was a vital faith. In fact, I think one of the phrases that they use is that, yes, we're justified by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. You know, a good tree is known by its fruit. If a tree is rooted in the right place— and it's healthy and alive, it's going to bear fruit. So if you're justified by faith alone because of or on the ground of Christ's righteousness, now Christ is in you, and we are being renewed day by day according to his image. And by God's grace, that's our sanctification. We're going to start bearing fruit. And that involves this faith plus work because of God's grace as we are being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And so I think the Reformers had a really a correct biblical understanding of the relationship between justification and sanctification. And so here at Westminster, we're very careful to show that there is a distinction between justification and sanctification, but not a separation. But there's a vital faith that produces fruit, that produces godliness. Now, does that mean we're perfect? Of course not, because we live in this, what we call the already not yet tension. We're simultaneously sinners and yet justified. But that sin in us is slowly, day by day, being rooted out of us as are being conformed by God's grace through his spirit into the image of Christ. And so it's very important for us as preachers and teachers to not only understand that distinction, but that distinction doesn't mean separation, but there's a relationship between justification and sanctification, and that's God's grace. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking to Dr. Julius Kim about the role of sola fide in preaching and in our teaching and in our counseling. Earlier, you described preaching as sort of pre-counseling. Well, what about in counseling? So someone's heard you preach a sermon, they're convicted because you've applied it to their lives in a concrete way in the sermon, and they come to you and they say, Pastor Kim, you know, my wife and I, were struggling with this, and I'm not sure that we're hitting the mark. Where does sola fide fit in the counseling room? 
Sure, that's a good question. Let me begin by saying that counseling is itself an art and a science. There's no you know, 10 rules that will change everybody for the rest of their life. There's no such thing. And it requires a lot of wisdom, a lot of discernment, because every case is different. Every person is different. So let me just state up front that anything that I say about counseling or in the counseling office needs to be taken in light of that. Oftentimes, it just requires a lot of wisdom. And frankly, wisdom may also say that the reason why you may be having problems may be medical. It may be chemical. And so let's make sure we get even a doctor's visit in there to make sure that the body is operating correctly. Are you getting enough sleep, nutrition, et cetera? Now, having said all those qualifiers, you know, what do the scriptures say really helps us change? Ultimately, only the gospel, the gospel of what Jesus has done for us can change the heart and can change the life. You might actually ask the counselee, well, here you are, and I saw you standing up confessing the faith with us, and you've made profession, and you've come to the Lord's table. But from what you're telling me, I am beginning to wonder if you have personally actually put your trust in Christ. Has that actually happened? Right. And that's a great question because I think one of the fundamental things we as pastors need to ask ourselves in the counseling office is almost in a sense categorize it. Is this partially evangelism or is this discipleship? So am I helping an unbeliever come to terms with who Christ is and how he needs Christ? Or are we talking about a person who has trusted in Christ but is struggling? like we all do in our faith. And so that's actually a fundamental thing that we need to ask ourselves. Are you even a Christian? Or maybe he's a believer who has, in one way or other, put himself on a kind of a works footing. That's right. And, and that really isn't helping his marriage, for example. That's exactly right. And again, here's when we get him back into sola fide. Is there a fundamental misunderstanding of what changes him or what has changed him? Namely, as long as he just works really hard at it, is that going to ultimately change him? It may. It may not. So it may be not just a lifestyle that needs to change. It may be fundamentally a belief system that yields a lifestyle. Is something wrong on the inside, namely his convictions about who Christ is, his convictions about faith alone, his convictions about Christ alone, that may be manifesting itself in ways that are not proper? Maybe his relationship with his wife isn't what it ought to be because he's constantly justifying himself to his wife instead of saying, you know, wife, you're right. I am a wretched sinner. I don't have to be correct about everything because I'm accepted by God freely through faith alone. And I don't have to get everything right. It's not to say I don't have to struggle and admit my faults and repent of them and my sins and so forth, but that I don't have to present myself to everyone as if I have it all together, right? And so once you make that admission, you have sort of a breakthrough where you can have a real honest relationship with another person. That's exactly right. That's so helpful, I think, Scott, because I think a lot of people don't recognize that even though they may say and believe, really, that they believe that they're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but fundamentally they live their lives as if they're Pharisees, that it's based on my effort my abilities, that I can be a good husband and be a good father. And they don't recognize that practically speaking, they're not actually living as if they believe in the gospel. And so they become very proud on the one hand or live in despair. So either they're proud of their achievements and what they can do or in despair, there's nothing I can do. So I'm not even going to try. What does the gospel do is it comes and it brings down the proud and makes them humble to recognize it. Just like what you said, you're right, honey, I am a sinner. And I think that's one of the fundamental places I need to begin is to recognize that I'm a sinner and I need God's grace to help me become a better husband. Or the other husband that's just so in despair and depressed, he's like, there's nothing I can do, nothing that can save me. 
well, that makes really light of the gospel and what Jesus actually can do in him. So whether you're this proud Pharisee or this despairing depressive, whatever that may be, I think, again, the gospel and sola fide and justification are important categories to help us as preachers and counselors to help those in our congregation. Again, now having said that, I'm not making light of depression at all. And those are just very difficult issues that need to be talked about. Have you always personally believed this Reformation doctrine of sola fide? Have you always gotten it or you were sort of born into it and you've always held it and you can't understand why other people just don't get it? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, maybe I can share this. When I first came to Westminster as a student in the early 90s, I came out of a fairly broadly evangelical church, you know, believed in the that the scriptures were trustworthy, that Christ alone was important for my salvation. I believed in the atonement. I was kind of open to the gifts of the Spirit. I was still wrestling with that topic. But what I didn't realize was when I got here, because of Westminster's emphasis on the clarity of the gospel, I didn't realize that I was believing in a different gospel, subtly. And so basically what happened was I would go to church on Sundays and hear a wonderful message about Jesus and what he's done. But fundamentally how the sermon ended was, now go and try harder. And so I'd say, yes, I'm going to go try harder. And then Monday morning would come around and I'd blow it or something would just not quite work out. And I'd get into despair. And so it was literally the roller coaster ride of my Christian life. But when I came to actually it was through Westminster and the teaching that I got here in every class, it seemed, I kept on getting bombarded. Why do they keep talking about Jesus? I got it already. And then all of a sudden they keep talking about the gospel. Then it kind of like dawned on me. Oh my goodness, the gospel frees me. And I realized the liberating power and the presence of Christ in the gospel. And somehow there's like a switch went on in my head and in my heart, and I felt so free. But what's interesting is that freedom didn't make me lazy. That freedom that I received because of my knowledge and understanding and trust in the gospel actually motivated me to even be more like Jesus because I was more enraptured by his beauty and goodness that I wanted to be more holy. So for me, That first year in seminary was life-changing. And so I owe so much to my education here at Westminster. I'm not saying this because I teach here where they're paying me to do this. I'm just telling you what happened to me, frankly, and how life-changing it was when I understood this soul, this doctrine, this beautiful doctrine of sola fide because of Christ alone, faith alone because of Christ's work alone. It changed my life, Scott. And I devoted myself. At that moment, I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life, as far as it depends on me, to sharing this with as many people, because this is the truth that will save people's lives, will change people's lives. And so I'm going to do whatever I can to preach it, to teach it, to live it, to share it until I die, because it's that important. And I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot about my past year, but you asked about that time in my life. And again, I'm not taking anything away from my upbringing in a Christian home. I'm so grateful that my parents took me to church and I had great pastors and great people in my life that helped me understand the work of Jesus. To me, there really was this kind of fundamental point in my life where the gospel became that precious and sweet to me. And actually was here at Westminster. And so I'm so thankful for my education here. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.